Welcome back to Rockford Reading Daily. We are continuing to read Melissa V. Harris Perry's Sister Citizen, Shame, Stereotypes, and Black Women in America. We are on Chapter 3, Resisting the Shaming of Suge Avery. And we are on page 98. Alice Walker's The Color Purple lays bare the suffering and struggle of Seeley, a poor, rural, black teen growing into womanhood under circumstances of extreme emotional deprivation and physical and sexual abuse. The Color Purple is also a story of resilience, redemption, and the power of loving female relationships, both sexual and platonic. Suge Avery is the novel's most defiant and independent female character. Celie falls in love with Suge, who is the catalyst for her eventual liberation. Many characters in the novel try to humiliate and discredit Suge because she refuses to conform to traditional expectations of Southern womanhood. Celie loves her for precisely these same reasons. Dear God, Mr. Daddy showed up this evening. He a little short, shrunk-up man with a bald head and gold spectacles. He cleared his throat a lot. Like everything he say, need announcement. Talk with his head linked to the side. He come right to the point. Just couldn't rest till you got her in your house, could you? He say, coming up the step. Mister, don't say nothing. Look out across the railing at the trees over the top of the well. Eyes rest on top of Harpo and Sophia house. Won't you have a seat? I asked, pushing him up a chair. How about a cool drink of water? Through the window, I hear Suge humming and humming, practicing her little song. I sneak back to her room and shut the window. Old mister, say to mister, just what it is, just what is, excuse me, just what is it about this Suge Avery anyway, he say. She is black as tar. She nappy-headed. She got legs like baseball bats. Mister, don't say nothing. I drop little spit in old Mr. Water. Why, say old mister, she ain't even clean. I hear she got the nasty woman disease. I twirl the spit round with my finger. I think about ground glass, wonder how you grind it. But I don't feel mad at all, just interest. Mister, turn his head slow, watch his daddy drink. Then say, real sad, you ain't got it in you to understand, he say. I love Suge Avery. Always have, always will. I should have married her when I had the chance. Yeah, say old mister, and throw your life away. Mr. Grunt right there. And a right smart of my money with it. Old mister clear his throat. Nobody even sure exactly who her daddy is. I never care who her daddy is, say mister. And her mammy taking white people dirty clothes to this day. Plus, all her children got different daddies. It all just too trifling and confused. Well, say mister, and turn full face on his daddy, all Suge Avery children got the same daddy. I vouch for that. Oh, mister, clear his throat. Well, this my house. This my land. Your boy Harpo in one of my houses on my land. Weeds come up on my land. I chop them up. Trash blow over it. I burn it. He rides to go, hand me his glass, 
Next time he come, I put a little sugar every pea in his glass. See how he like that. Okay, and then, okay, that brings us to chapter three. This looks like it was just sort of like an interlude. Looks like this was just like a little interlude here. Okay, and I, I'm assuming that that excerpt is from the book, The Color Purple. Never read the book, The Color Purple, but I have seen the Steven Spielberg film with uh, Danny Glover and Whoopi Goldberg and Oprah Winfrey. And I remember watching that movie as a as a young child, as a young black child, and being disturbed by the imagery, being disturbed by some of the situations that the women characters were in and seeing the uh, arranged, essentially arranged marriage of this young black woman to this old black man. And it was uh, seeing the black woman being beat at the hands of black men throughout the book. And it was something that was very jarring to me to know that that was a reality that people like that people, uh, women who, you know, I was raised by a single mother that, you know, people like my mother would have to endure simply just for being a woman. And, and so those are some of the things that I, that stand out to me from reading that excerpt. So we're starting chapter three entitled shame. For instance, well-mannered Negroes grown out like that. My people, when they board a train or a bus and find other Negroes on there with their shoes off, stuffing themselves with fried fish, bananas, and peanuts, and throwing the garbage on the floor. Maybe they are not only eating and drinking. The offenders may be, quote, loud talking, end quote, the place, and holding back nothing of their private lives, and a voice that embraces the entire coach. The well-dressed Negro shrinks back in his seat at that, shakes his head, and sighs. We just had a motorcycle come by, so I just turned the mic down. So I'm going to see if I, how often I can be able to do that. Okay. I know that's gonna be, this is going to be in the background some, but... The well-dressed Negro shrinks back in his seat at that, shakes his head and sighs, quote, my people, my people, end quote. Zora Neale Hurston, dust tracks on the road. One way African-American women try to help their daughters stand straight in the crooked room is by telling them inspiring stories. Mothers, grandmas, aunts, and teachers want little black girls to... All right, motorcycle gone. Sorry about that. We outside. Mothers, grandmas, aunts, and teachers want little black girls to know that they can achieve greatness. So they tell them that Harriet Tubman was a courageous and powerful woman who risked her life by leading more than 300 slaves to freedom through the Underground Railroad. They explain that Rosa Parks' courageous refusal to give up her seat on a segregated city bus launched the Civil Rights Movement and helped her people earn equal rights. They encourage little girls to watch Venus and Serena Williams play tennis and then remind them that Althea Gibson grew up in Harlem Road living on welfare but she eventually won at Wimbledon. They speak of Mae Jemison, who became a doctor and a scientist and was the first black woman astronaut. Or they might talk about how Shirley Chisholm was the first black woman elected to Congress and how she ran for president of the United States. 
They tell these and other stories to make themselves and their children proud. Families and educators prepare black children to meet racial hostility through a process of socialization meant to negate harmful images of blackness and replace them with role models of courage, resilience, and achievement. I think that's a highlightable sentence right there. Families and educators prepare black children to meet racial hostility through a process of socialization meant to negate harmful images of blackness and replace them with role models of courage, resilience, and achievement. Uh, I don't got my pen. I don't know where I said it at, but if you're reading along. This positive racial identity is important to the psychological well-being of black adolescents and adults. I saw some evidence of the success of this socialization when I conducted a survey at Chicago's 2005 Expo for Today's Black Woman. I asked about, excuse me, I asked more than 100 African-American women how they felt about black women today. A substantial majority felt very or extremely proud, hopeful, and inspired. Only a small fraction reported feeling angry, afraid, or discouraged. For data, see Appendix Table 1. Stories of black excellence are particularly powerful for countering derogatory racial images because African-Americans have historically relied on, quote, fictive kinship, end quote, ties. The term fictive kinship refers to connections between members of a group who are unrelated by blood or marriage, but who nonetheless share reciprocal social or economic relationships. In this book, I draw on the deep tradition of black fictive kinship when I refer to black women as, quote, sisters, end quote. This imagined community of familial ties underscores a voluntary sense of shared identity that maps onto the historical construction of race. Fictive kinship makes the accomplishments of African-Americans relevant to the unrelated black individuals. There is a sense in which we are all family. Fictive kinship is also important to African-American political thought and practice. Michael Dawson describes the powerful effect of black-linked fate on African-American public opinion, showing that individuals identify racial interests with their own self-interest. In my book, excuse me, in my first book, Barbershops, Bibles, and BET, I explored how African-Americans use ordinary conversations to craft, quote, common sense, in quote, racial identities that have consequences for political ideology. Group loyalties and collective commitments influence how black people engage the political world. Within black communities, the actions and ideas of individual members can be censored as traitorous or celebrated as heroic. In order to understand black women's politics, we need to think about the emotional consequences of acting within this family. Fictive kinship, linked fate, and common sense allow black women to draw emotional comfort from other women's courageous and exemplary lives, but there is an insidious corollary to this sisterly pride. If one's sense of self is connected to the positive accomplishments of other African Americans, then it is also linked to negative portrayals and stereotypes of the race. The flip side of pride is shame, and like racial pride, racial shame is an important political emotion. That brings us to a changing of the theme within this chapter. And the main thing that stands out to me there is... Hmm, 
this concept of fictive kinship. I've never, I've never heard about that before. That's my first time reading reading about that term. I think here you know, I want to, I'm gonna get my pen out of my bag. So I'm gonna stop. I'm gonna stop recording this segment and then start back. So the concept of fictive kinship is something that stands out to me from the passage that we just read. The the last sentence which sort of links together how if you view how black women being shown other black women who have been successful and who have triumphed against insurmountable odds in this country, how showing them those images and those people and those individuals as a way to instill into them confidence and empowerment how that is juxtaposed with the fact that individuals who have been shamed, individuals who have dealt with negative aspects, individuals who may have succumbed to the society in America or, st- or, or stigmas that may be attributed to those same individuals, how that can have a negative impact in the same way that a positive impact can be had from championing those individuals. Okay, let's keep on reading. What is shame? In psychology, the study of shame is a relative newcomer. The first book-length treatment of shame as a clinical concern did not appear until 1971, and the emotion remained neglected until the late 1980s. But in the past two decades, shame has become an increasingly important area of inquiry, and psychologists, sociologists, Legal scholars and literary critics have studied the various ways shame influences our lives. Few, however, have asked how it influences our politics. The emotion of shame has three important elements. The first is social. Individuals feel ashamed in response to a real or imagined audience. We do not feel shame in isolation, only when we transgress a social boundary or break a community expectation. Our our internal moral guide may lead us to feel guilt, but shame comes when we fear exposure and evaluation by others. This may be especially true for girls and women who draw a larger sense of self-identity from their friendly, familial, and romantic relationships. Second, shame is global. It causes us not only to evaluate our actions, but to make a judgment about our whole selves. A person may feel guilty about a specific incident, but still feel that she is a good person. Shame is more diffuse. It extends beyond a single incident and becomes an evaluation of the self. Psychologists commonly refer to shame as a belief in the malignant self. The idea that your entire person is infected by something inherently bad and potentially contagious. Finally, Shame brings a psychological and physical urge to withdraw, submit, or appease others. When we feel ashamed, we tend to drop our heads, avert our eyes, and fold into ourselves. Pride makes us feel taller. Think of Phoebe made taller by listening to Janie's story. Bolder and more open. Shame makes us want to be smaller, timid, and more closed. Quote, shame transforms our identity. We experience ourselves as being small and worthless and as being exposed, end quote. Clinical psychologists have traced the corrosive effects of shame in a number of dimensions. It is a common and debilitating effect of childhood and sexual abuse. 
excuse me, of childhood sexual abuse. It is implicated in a higher incidence of depression among women and contributes to alcoholism, hostility, social anxiety, personality disorders, and suicide. When individuals feel chronically ashamed, they tend to attribute all negative events to their own failings. Instead of seeing the external world as capable of producing both good and bad outcomes, shamed individuals see themselves as particularly worthy of punishment. Shame eats away at self-esteem and makes every social role more difficult. Shame is also linked to field dependence. Remember that how we place ourselves in the crooked room is related to the information around us. Some individuals assume that the room must be correct, so they adapt themselves to it, while others can detect that the room itself is askew. When we feel ashamed, we assume the room is straight and that the self is off kilter. Shame urges us to internalize the crooked room. It also has physiological effects. Blushing, the most obvious and mundane of these effects, is so closely associated with shame that some people believed African Americans did not experience shame because their blushing was not visible. Thomas Jefferson offered up the ability to blush, along with, quote, flowing hair, end quote, and, quote, a more elegant symmetry of form, end quote, as evidence of the superior beauty of white women. Quote, are not the fine mixtures of red and white the expressions of every passion by greater or less suffusions of color in the one, preferable to the eternal monotony which reigns in the countenances that immovable veil of black which covers all the emotions of the other race, end quote. Jefferson assumed that because only white women could manifest the outward signs of shame, they alone possessed the virtue of modesty. Such assumptions aside, black people can and do feel the physiological urge to hide and retreat when experiencing shame. Black people are like other individuals. When asked to recall shameful events, they talk about having a strong desire to hide, escape, or disappear, and they display the physical postures of slumping, dropping the head, and avoiding eye contact. When it is experienced often over many years, shame has far more dramatic consequences. Laboratory experiments have shown that shame causes the body to release the steroid hormone cortisol. The shame cortisol response is similar to the fear-induced, quote, fight-or-flight response, end quote. When, when faced with physical danger, our bodies release hormones that prepare us to escape or to fight. When we feel ashamed, our bodies react with hormones that tell us to save our social selves by fleeing. Fight or flight is an adaptive response when we need to react quickly to physical danger, but if we face chronic exposure to such danger, the physiological response becomes a key element of post-traumatic stress disorder. The shame-induced cortisol response can be similarly debilitating when cortisol levels are chronically elevated. People who repeatedly suffer social rejection become vulnerable to a variety of health effects. Elevated cortisol can lead to weight gain, heart disease, hardening of the arteries, and decreased immune function. Because it is a response to social rejection, individuals who do not conform to social norms are more subject to frequent and enduring experiences of shame. Overweight women, for instance, experience significant shame in societies where feminine desirability is defined by thinness. African-American women are structurally positioned to experience shame more frequently than others. As a group, they possess a number of stigmatized identities and life circumstances. They are more likely to be poor, 
to be unmarried, to parent children alone, to be overweight, to be physically ill, and to be undereducated and underemployed. Black women who escape many of these circumstances must still contend with damaging racial and gender stereotypes. They are aware that others see them through a distorted lens that renders them socially unacceptable. This sense of social rejection and undesirability may express itself in experiences of chronic shame with both physiological, with both physiological and psychological effects. Skin color and hair texture, for example, have both been found to evoke a sense of shame that affects black women's feelings of attractiveness, affects familial relationships, shapes expectations for romantic partnership and economic success, and manifests in disordered eating. In this sense, shame is the psychological and physical effect of repeated acts of misrecognition. Black women can expect that the tilted images of the crooked room will be used to judge and sometimes limit them, and through the mechanism of shame, the inability to align themselves with the crooked room can actually make sisters sick. Although shame can be corrosive to individual psychology, some have argued that it serves important social purposes. Sociologist Irving Goffman shows how shame, disgrace, and embarrassment help craft social order and meaning in everyday life. Because shame is connected to collective rules and shared expectations, it is a basic tool by which societies create moral order. Individuals fear the harsh judgments of their families, friends, and communities, so they present themselves as aligned with external norms. Shame works through real or anticipated social sanctions that punish violations of group rules and thus helps us stay within the lines of acceptable behavior and thought. Shame gives a parent the power to send a withering glance down a long pew on Sunday morning and immediately stop a rowdy child from disrupting a church service. This can be adaptive for the group because it supports the creation and maintenance of tradition, shared identity, and group distinctiveness. Shame that results from expressions of disapproval within the context of loving or respectful relationships is known as reintegrative shaming. It is a social strategy consistent with strong communal norms and can be an important element of a child's development. The girl hushed in church learns what behavior is expected, but does not fear that her mother will cease to love her. And I think that's a highlightable section right there or, or sentence right there. Shame that results from expressions of disapproval within the context of loving or respectful relationships is known as reintegrative shaming. We're almost at the end of this section and we'll have, or the end of this theme within this chapter and we'll have a reflection. Stigmatizing shaming is more insidious. It purposes not to keep individuals in a community, but to label them as outcasts. Employed in this way, shame can be a destructive force, particularly when it infuses a nation's legal and political practices. The philosopher Martha Nussbaum argues that shame and disgust are unreliable guides for public policy because shame tends to distort. Shaming is not restricted to individuals whose acts transgress the law, but is deployed against whole groups based on identity alone. Quote, Societies ubiquitously select certain groups and individuals for shaming, marking them off as, quote, abnormal and demanding that they blush at what and who they are, end quote. When this form of shaming is codified in law, its effects are pernicious. 
Shane motivates brutal social practices like honor killing, domestic violence, and foot binding. A state that shames its citizens violates the foundational social contract of liberal democracies, government's commitment to respect individual dignity. A democratic state can rightfully impose guilt because guilt is focused on bad acts. And this specific focus on behavioral violation can encourage empathy and motivate the guilty to altruistic action. Something different happens when the state seeks to shame its citizens by imposing a lasting stigma on their very identity. It is proclaiming that the person herself or himself is defective. Rather than motivating restitution, shame debilitates and encourages avoidance. For example, it is reasonable to imprison individuals who break the law. But when former inmates are stripped of the right to vote for the rest of their lives, the state has moved from punishing guilt to imposing shame. Lifetime disenfranchisement marks the citizen as defective and unfit for participation in a democracy. The shamed ex-felon is not invited to rejoin the community, but instead is forced to the margins. Though we seldom think of it this way, racism is the act of shaming others based on their identity. Blackness in America is marked by shame. Perhaps more than any other emotion, shame depends on the social context. On an individual level, we feel ashamed because of how we believe people see us or how they would see us if they knew about our hidden transgressions. Shame makes us view our very selves as malignant. But societies also define entire groups as malignant. Historically, the United States has done that with African Americans. This collective racial shaming has a disproportionate impact on black women, and black women's attempts to escape or manage shame are part of what motivates their politics. And that brings us to the end of that theme, or changing of a theme within that, the chapter of shame. And what is shame? That was the name of that, that section that we just read. And I think that one of the things that stands out to me is how good of a job Melissa V. Harris Perry did of explaining what shame is, how shame affects people, how shame, how the unique and specific form of shame that black people and black women endure in this country. And when I look back on our previous chapter of Myth and Crooked Room, I think that each one of these, each theme of each one of these chapters does a good job of helping to give credence to the to the chapter beforehand. And so the concept of the crooked room is something that Melissa V. Harris Perry continues to harken back on to explain to us how black women's misrecognition by the outside society exist, how the norms and the social standards and the value systems of of this country of America is something that are, is purposefully crooked and, and unaligned with the existence of black women in this country, with the existence of black people in this country. And then Melissa V. Harris Perry went into the chapter, went into the second chapter of myth, which provided us some of the stereotypes which helped to slant that crooked room. And now as we get into the chapter of shame, we start to see the psychological and physical effects that those myths have on black women, that the 
that that crooked room has on black women. And so as with each book, for me personally, that I, I read through, it's as you get deeper into the book and you learn the language that the person is writing with, you learn the the, the way that they articulate things, you start to be able to get into a, a good groove of of lining up the information that's being given to you with information that you, you've had previously. Uh, I think one of the other things that stands out in here is the mention of Thomas Jefferson, which I think we have already went through once in this book. And I'm sure we've, for a fact, we've went through in multiple other books. And I want to highlight, I'm trying to get my pen. I, I still got to get a highlighter. So I'm, I'm just marking the spot with a pen. But let's see if I can figure out what I did with my pen. Okay, here we go. I want to, it's a few highlightable sections in there that I didn't point out. So when Thomas Jefferson is, is mentioned, Okay, one second. Okay, one second, one second, where are we at? Thomas Jefferson. All right, had to go back. Lost. I had lost my spot, sorry about that. Okay, so Thomas Jefferson offered up the ability to blush along with flowing hair and a more elegant symmetry of form as evidence of the superior beauty of white women. And then it goes into the sentence. That sentence should be highlighted as well. And I think that the re to me, the reason to highlight this quote from Thomas Jefferson is that Thomas Jefferson is a, a celebrated racist, slaveholding, bigoted rapist in this country. And we have to, when we are beginning to talk about the crooked, the crooked room that black women live in and exist in, in this society, we have to be able to point out different individuals who have contributed to the tilting of that room. And Thomas Jefferson is one of those individuals. And his, the way that this country celebrates him and puts him on a pedestal is something that is continuously destructive to black women. It continuously devalues the experiences of black women. It continuously degrades black women by telling them that that this by by showing them how how little the experiences that they have had are cared about by this society there's another something else in here i think is highlightable that i missed uh, okay one second One second. Okay, so they said the emotion of shame has three important elements. The first is social. And then the next sentence is what I think needs to be highlighted. Individuals feel ashamed in response to a real or imagined audience. We do not feel shame in isolation, only when we transgress a social boundary or break a community expectation. I think that's a, a highlighted thing there. And then second, shame is global. It causes us not only to evaluate our actions, but to make adjustment about our whole selves. A person may feel guilty about a specific incident, but still feel that she is a good person. Shame is more diffuse. It extends beyond a single incident and becomes an evaluation of self. So that whole thing, I think, is to be highlighted. And... 
Same, and there's another paragraph here. What's up, what's up, brother? Same is also linked to field dependence. Remember that how we place ourselves in a crooked room is related to the information around us. Some individuals assume that the room must be correct, so they adapt themselves to it, while others can detect that the room itself is askew. When we feel ashamed, we assume the room is straight and that self is off kilter. Shame urges us to internalize the crooked room. Okay. Is there anything else in here? I'm sure it is a few other things in here. I'm supposed to be, I would rather think about these things as I'm reading it. Okay, so for example, for example, it's reasonable to imprison individuals who break the law, but when former inmates are stripped of the right to vote for the rest of their lives, the state has moved from punishing guilt to imposing shame. So that paragraph there. And then in this last thing, stigmatizing, stigmatizing shaming is more insidious. Its purpose is not to keep individuals in a community, but to label them as outcasts. And another thing that was brought up is how shame can be, what was the, what was the term used? They spoke about the way that a parent can use shame to try to dictate behavior, try to change behavior. And that is known as reintegrative shaming. So I think that that's something that should be brought up. Okay, and so I think we're going to end this episode here. We're about close to 30 minutes. And I think that the both the chapter myth and the chapter shame have been important because of how deep she has delved into the concepts of the black myths and stereotypes around black women and the effects that those have in the realm of shame and not just a lot of times words get used and there's not a deeper, deeper dissection of what those words really mean, how the, the residual effects that those words have, the impact that those words have on people or that those terms or those concepts have on people. And Melissa V. Harris Perry is doing an amazing job of diving into the, diving below surface level and getting into the depths of the concepts of, of shame. So please share this on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Remember, we put these episodes out on a daily basis to provide people the opportunity to begin and further their journey in the struggle to end police terrorism, mass incarceration, and racial injustice. And we will be back tomorrow with another episode of Rafa Reading Daily, and we will continue reading Sister Citizen, Shame, Stereotypes, and Black Women in America by Melissa V. Harris Perry. We outside.